0: northern harrier flew higher than usual above the fence line, catching an updraft off the hillside and letting the warm air loft her into the sky. Below, in the Willamette Valley, an orchard-bordered grassland gave way to the foothills of a small mixed conifer forest. From the great height where the tawny bird hung as though paused, a thin patchwork of forest extended below in a jagged line westward toward the ocean the slimmest of remnant green corridors for the songbirds, insects, or hard-pressed large mammals to travel from the valley all the way to the Pacific. This is GP Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Emily Stralo, author of The Wild Birds. In these non-linear tales of survival and love, Strelo shares her love of the Pacific Northwest and her passion for birds. Skipping from deserts to precarious cliffs overlooking the ocean, Strelos characters seek livelihoods, friendships, places to live and love. They battle the forces of nature and the small mindedness of fellow humans whose capacity for accepting otherness is sometimes challenged. And like the wild birds, they ultimately find their ways home. Hi, Emily, thanks for joining me today. So wonderful to be here. So what is your personal experience with desert wildlife and field biology and how did you come to write this beautiful novel?
1: Well, I was a avian field biologist, uh, basically a field technician. I would work for um, a project collecting bird data for about 10 years. Um, And my partner and I would go from state to state and be part of the project and just be on the ground collecting the data with the wildlife. For whom? Anyone and everyone. So, we worked for the government, for the USGS. We worked for the Fish and Wildlife. We worked for non-governmental organizations like Rocky Mountain Bird Observatory, Point Reyes Bird Observatory. Um, so, and, and then we worked sometimes for as contractors for private companies. Uh, whenever they do like a, they're surveying for a solar field or for wind farms, they need biologists to go in there and gather all the data on what's nesting. uh, And then they know what kind of the lay of the land is.
0: So at some point you have all this research under your belt and then you decide, I think I'm going to write a novel.
1: Well, I had always been a writer. I'd already gotten my MFA before I started doing field biology. (laughs) So I had these two degrees. I had an environmental science degree and I had Um, a an MFA pretty much right out of college and so I was sort of writing the book the whole time I would write it by lamplight in my tent you know and I would write it in the back of trucks curled up and I was writing these anecdotes that were beginning to sort of become one and Um, at some point I had to come out of the field and go into the library, like, especially the historical library and get more information. And then I basically just absconded into a little, uh, room in Portland and just finished it at some point. And Mm. that, but the total time was like 12 or 13 years.
0: Oh. So I've got a lot of questions. Okay, The book takes place from the early uh, 1890s. Uh, I'm sorry, from the late 1800s mm-hmm. through the early 1990s. Why and how did you choose the nonlinear structure in which we go back and forth in time?
1: Well, that goes back to the MFA. I think it started there. I did a 65-page um, academic essay as my my academic thesis on nonlinear time, and I was studying, you know, how you can use figurative language, metonymy, synecdoche, all these different poetic devices to structure a narrative. So I was really that was uh, I had a keen interest in the nonlinear time structure for a novel. But at some point, through my biological travels in my work, I started thinking about how in how mushrooms in particular and mycorrhizal fibers are kind of like you could think of them as a structure and so i started structuring my novel based off how mycorrhizal fibers branch and come back together and how information gets fed and it goes away and it comes back and then it fruits and so that was basically my structure that i had about halfway through.
0: Well, now I'm going to need to read the whole book again. (laughs) Um, Every chapter has something different about birds in it, some different aspect. Let's talk about that.
1: Well, uh, I am a very, um, I'm a birder. I love birds. I spend a lot of my free time with my partner and my children birding. Uh, and so it, it, I think it just was, it's part of my breathing. It's part of what I do and who I am. And so I think I just incorporated them as though they were characters. They return. Nice. And going back to that nonlinear time structure, I mean, the figurative language of birds is um, potent. I think you can... Like the blind harrier returns many times over, not as a blind harrier, but in different iterations. Um, for me, that was a way, another way of structuring it.
0: There's also a strong sense of place between Oregon, California, Arizona, and then this whole group of people who want to secede from the state of California. Let's talk about that.
1: Yes. So... It's a band of outsiders, really. Everyone's an outsider in the book. They, but that title was already taken, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I see Hinton. Um, But so they're all outsiders and they're all searching for a place that feels uh, right. And some of them are to very rooted, like Alice is to her place, the Willamette Valley, and others Unroot themselves and go looking, and the like the wanderer. Um, and I think I lost my train of thought. <laughs> okay, the, uh, the the sense of place. Okay, okay, yes. Oh well, the so the sense of place came from my own experiences in a lot of these different habitats and ecosystems. I think. Um, I have a great, great love for the the West, not in the sense of like cowboys or that kind of history, but more of just like the different types of topography and ecology that we have is so vast and you can travel from one climate to another microclimate and be in a whole new world. And so I really had lived in that space and I wanted that to be alive as a, as a secondary character in the book, um, Mm -hmm. the, the place.
0: The book opens in 1994 with Alice, one of your, you have several protagonists, but Alice and her daughter, Lily are the main characters. What drew you to them? Alice was,
1: was just, okay. So Alice and Lily were in a short story that I wrote in graduate school. And then I kept trying to, it was almost accepted for publication several places, but it was really long. It was like 45 pages. And so people said, if you can cut 15 pages, we can publish this. And I couldn't find a way of doing that. just kept getting longer and longer. (laughs) And so these characters were the basis of the whole book. And um, the book just got longer and longer. And at one point, my mom said, I think maybe this isn't a
0: short story. This may be <laughs> a
1: novel, honey. And I said, I think you're right.
0: Yeah. Alice is best friends with Sal, who uh, her childhood friend who lives on a commune. Why does it take them so many years to figure out that they actually love each other?
1: I think that's a situation of these two girls being in an extremely homophobic culture that I was familiar with as a teenager growing up in the Willamette Valley there were you know ballot measures to ban homosexual activity that almost passed by just a few votes and so I was one of the people out there like on the ground talking you know canvassing and talking to people as a teenager and it was terrifying and there was a murder in my hometown of a homosexual person it was it was terrifying and so i think i was drawing on that fear the girls have so much fear surrounding their own love for each other that they need to go out and live lives, and gain confidence from the rest of the world, from the natural world, and come back and find each other.
0: Mm-hmm. Alice struggles to run the orchard that's left to her when her parents died, but she's unhappy, unfulfilled, and she develops a serious drinking problem.
1: Yes, she does. Um, and I felt like, that was something that I wanted to anchor her character in, because it's such a common problem for so many people. I wanted her to be sympathetic, but also difficult and dark. Mm-hmm. And an, and she struggles, and she struggles to be functional, and she struggles to be a mom, and her daughter is taking care of her at points. and. I I felt like that's a character that a lot of people can relate to. And ultimately, you travel through these sort of dark phases, but the story is one of redemption by the end. Um, Mm -hmm. So many of the darknesses have been, you know, revealed to the light. Yeah.
0: But altered states of consciousness come up in several ways again and again throughout the book. What's your take on that? Yeah.
1: And so I was personally sort of going through some, you know, some stuff in my twenties when I started the book and I was thinking about, I was really searching hard for my own meaning and my own place and my own looking at my own addictions. Um, And I was looking to other kinds of mind expanding. I mean, microdosing is in the news all over the place now, but basically I was looking at how other drugs could reveal and like put a mirror up to your, your own addictions. And so I, I think it was a long time ago for me now, cause I'm 41, but I was using the story to kind of move through that.
0: Mm-hmm. So we're introduced to Lily's friends, Sarah and Max. Friendship is a a really important subject in your novel, another major subject. What were you trying to convey about their specific friendship and friendship between all the different characters? Well, I think when
1: you're younger, especially, and um, you're in a friendship, there can be these moments where you wonder, is this a friendship or is this a a love and like the strong feelings that she has for max may just be her experiencing love for the first time with someone outside of her family. But, um, and there's, you know, when you're younger, you can kind of confuse friend love and sexual love. And so I was navigating that
0: with those characters, um, I see that you were. Um, Olive. Let's talk about Olive and Warren. Really interesting story. Now we're back in the 19th century. Right.
1: So then that was so fun to write. I got to spend a lot of time in the San Francisco Historical Library, upstairs in the top of the library downtown, just going through. I had this stack of letters um, actually from a lighthouse keeper, To his brother, and so I took a I took a lot of the language straight from the texts. I was really methodical, perhaps too methodical, about checking every single word that was used in those historical sections against texts from the historical (laughs) library, Um, because I was navigating for the first time how to write historical fiction. Um, But that said. I did take the freedom of um Warren and the Eggers and just ran with it in my own mind and used it as a narrative that I felt like would layer nicely with Alice and Lily and the other characters in the book so that essentially the stories sort of overlay like pieces of tracing paper on one another and can be a larger picture when they're put together.
0: Yeah, it did kind of do that. And the the one thing all, all these different subjects tied everybody together but the bird egg collection was so, so meaningful passed from one person to the next. Let's let's go over that.
1: Yeah, so that's that is my heart. That is my heart as a person not just an author but as an ecologist and as a naturalist. I mean the the degradation of habitat for Wildlife is a passion of mine, and so the Farallons are a really interesting case because the Eggers did come on, come in in the 1870s, and they were they they decimated it in the real sense of the the word decimate, like when you take something from a hundred to one, um, and they just wiped out these seabird populations. And before that, there had been Fur seal populations also decimated, and so this place that had once been a hotbed for wildlife was quickly becoming. um, It was under the pressure for from the gold rush, so they were providing dairy for San Francisco during its growing pains. Um, When the dairy, you know, when the the chicken dairy industry couldn't keep up, and so. They just started collecting wild bird eggs, and I just think it's a great example of like how quickly humans can destroy an entire population of wildlife, and um, and then it also becomes figurative for these people looking for place and looking for meaning in their own stories.
0: Mm-hmm. You got a lot of uh, really not nice people <laughs> running through this book. It's true, it's true there there
1: are some dark moments there's several um you know, there's sexual assault, there's moments that come close to sex more sexual assault, but don't there's just a lot of grittiness and a selfishness, and I think I was trying to put a lens on human greed as as it corresponds to the degradation of habitat.
0: Mm-hmm. But it, you balanced it by some really good people doing good things.
1: Yes. Like, well, not to say too many spoilers, but the, I'm thinking of the wanderer finding the rooster. Mm-hmm. Just like small moments of care and kindness that, that run through it. And that, I hope is ultimately the light that shines the brightest
0: in the book. Um, Should we talk about the wanderer for a bit? What's he seeking? What does he find?
1: Sure. I always,
0: (laughs) so when people like
1: readers respond to me and it's my favorite thing when readers respond and write me notes about what was meaningful and what, you know, touched them. But when I feel like there's a, a certain love in my heart that lights up when people, say oh i related to the wanderer so much um and i just want to say tell me your story um mm-hmm. because the wanderer is comes from money he comes from privilege and he rejects that and takes off to try and find himself mm-hmm. um cuz he's a true individual and he he ultimately finds a companion in a, in a cockfighting rooster that he rescues. And it's, it's so sweet.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Um, Of all the characters, I'm going to guess that you most identified with Sal.
1: I, well, I don't know. Yeah. I've been asked that before and they're all me and none of them are me. Um, In a way, I think Lily, Lily was a nickname that some people called me when I was growing up and i think i have part of her i have part of alice and i have part of sal but those three characters um i think in combination i have share a lot with and yet they're all
0: their own creatures as well mm-hmm. nature's power over humanity is a st- another strong aspect of your writing mm-hmm. humans trying to control things but generally failing mm-hmm. except you have that one funny story about Somebody trying pretending to control nature it was a brilliant story. Um, let's talk about that. Nature's wait, power over humanity. Wait, which one are you referring to? The- when Max pretends to control nature.
1: Oh, oh, right. So Max a weather <laughs> report. Yes, and that actually came from a, a friend named Dempsey, um, a native, uh, First Nations friend up in Canada of mine, who. Did that. And um, it was so, f- he had such great joy in the retelling and I had such great joy. We all did in hearing it and receiving it. And it wasn't exactly as I tried to, you know, fictionalize it, but uh, I, I felt like it was, he's identifying white privilege and bias and then playing with it, which I think is an rising above it and becoming more powerful through humor. And so he, you know, he's combining science, he's combining mythology, he's combining religion, he's combining all these to make a statement. And no one really gets it because they're all these dumb teenagers, but they get a sense that he is more powerful
0: than they are. And I, that's, yeah, yeah. And another uh, time when humans try to control things and fail is Sal, who is so experienced, but just doesn't see the wall of water coming.
1: Yes. Uh, she's sort of been pushed to the edge at that point by in various ways, and she's just exhausted. And if you've ever spent a lot of time in wind that is mixed with sand, you'll understand what I'm talking about, like... The sand and the wind—it it gets in your ears, it gets in your eyes, and you begin to lose your judgment. And so I kind of had her in that situation, and even—I've yeah. done things like that, like against my better judgment. I, you know, I'm just going to sleep on the rocks here in a wash mm-hmm. <laughs> with no tent because I'm tired, I'm exhausted, and um, and something. I one time had a scorpion crawl into my hair and I was like, well, that's what I get for doing that. But, you know, (laughs) but so she goes against her own, her better judgment, which we all do. And she finds herself just completely in a downpour, which actually did happen to me one time in, in Arizona up in the sky islands. I was, we had just this major monsoon and it was the first one of the season and it always sort of takes you by surprise. And, um, our tent lifted off the ground with two people and started floating down the hill until we just were like lay flat and we both lay flat and kind of pinned it down. But, um, I think that was sort of the instigator for that,
0: that scene. It sounds like you have a lot of stories in you, Emily, what are you working on next?
1: Ooh, I am so excited about this. It's it's a complete novel. It does not use nonlinear time. It's a sort of A to B linear structure. Um, just as weird and magical and maybe more so than this one and with so many animals. Um, but my it's in, in process and my agent has it and he's excited about it and... I'm excited about it and we'll probably put
0: it out there soon. It sounds wonderful. Let me know when it comes out. I will. Thank you so much for joining me today, Emily. It's been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure
1: for me. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Bye. And thank you for joining me again. This is GP Gottlieb, author of the whipped and sipped mystery series and host of new books and literature, podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking with Emily Strelo, author of The Wild Birds. If you enjoyed today's podcast and would like to discuss it further with me and other New Books Network listeners, please join us on Shuffle. Shuffle is an ad-free, invite-only network focused on the creativity community. As NBN listeners, you can get special access to conversations with a dynamic community writers, and literary enthusiasts. Sign up by going to www.shuffle.do forward slash nbn forward slash join.